0: like we need a studio audience, you know, and like the squares, and I'll take this question for 400, please, that kind of stuff. But here we go. Because I believe that if we are in any way thinking about God or thinking about our lives below a mere surface level, if we are in any way contemplating and struggling with the issues we see in our world, are trying to be a follower of Christ today we are going to have questions now there are some people and churches for that matter that seem to take a certain posture and convey a certain attitude that asking questions about God is bad They think that the questions revolving our struggles shouldn't be asked. The questions revolving around our doubts shouldn't be asked. Questions that we should already know the answers to shouldn't be asked. And my experience is people like that, both in and outside of the church, will often do a really good job of making us feel pretty stupid for asking them. They'll make us feel embarrassed or shamed or judged. But that is not what we believe here at Fellowship of Faith. There are five real core principles or values, if you will, that really define how we operate here at Fellowship of Faith, what we believe and how we do ministry. And I want to share one of them with you today. And here it is on the screen. It's a desire to be real. We believe the church needs to be a place where people can come and see that Christians are real people. It's experiencing joys, passions, and struggles. Because of this, we strive to communicate God's truth and share our experiences in open and honest ways. We believe it's important as a community to be honest about our shortcomings, authentic in our lives and sincere in what we teach. We want to be humble as a church and express our faith in a way that is genuine. And I believe that. I believe that with all my core, and I believe that's what we need to be about here at Fellowship of Faith. And for that reason, we want to hear your questions, your struggles your doubts. We want to hear about the things that are just getting you wondering about God with joy and the things that are scaring you as you consider it. We want to hear the silly questions and the serious ones. We want to hear the complex ones and the simple ones. We want to hear the orthodox questions and the heretical ones. We want you to ask the questions that you don't feel like Google is answering satisfactorily. We want you to ask the questions that you have struggled to ask before, that you have difficult articulating, the questions that you don't really know where to turn or questions for which the answers you have been given have been, shall we say, kind of just not hitting the mark. And we invite you to text those questions in to 815-314-0363. Again, it's 815 314 0363 three. See, I don't worry about people who have spiritual questions. I worry when people don't. Because what it indicates to me is one of a few things. One, perhaps that they think they just have it all figured out. Which to me betrays sadly, I think, in in inner arrogance. Or two, that I know enough, that I've got enough, which says to me that you've stopped growing, that you're treating God more as a service provider than someone that you're in a relationship with. Or three, that you're just not taking the time to really give time in your life to think about God and consider him and the importance of what he is doing in you and in this world, or maybe even this, that something is holding you back. Fear, embarrassment, a bad experience in the past when you've asked the question and have been treated in a similar way to what I described earlier or something like that it's a bit akin to me to couples in a relationship in a marriage I don't worry about the couples that have conflict I tend to worry more when they never do because it says to me that in that relationship someone is afraid to express their opinion someone is afraid to have their own voice someone is checked out and just not willing to put the effort in that might lead to disagreement or that even worse, someone might be afraid of the repercussions of what will happen. So we want you to text your questions in. And if that number wasn't big enough, here is it even bigger. 815-314-0363. I will get them anonymously. Yes, yes. Anonymously, unless you text your name in your text, right? Um, I will get them anonymously right here on the spot. And I am just going to do the best job I can to answer them straightforwardly, honestly, candidly, humbly, from a position of what I believe God's Word teaches. And hopefully, in the process, we can help you navigate the questions that you're asking about God, about a relationship with Jesus, about other belief systems and religions, about how they compare, about how to be a Christian in this world, about how to do the spiritual life, about fellowship of faith, about me, about the staff, about anything in between. So, let me fire this up. We're going to see where it's going to take us and they are already flowing in. All right, who is the hottest person you know at Fellowship of Faith? (laughs) Fantastic. But he's married, ladies, so I hate to, you know, break your heart right here. You're a hot man, Kyle, all right? You're a hot man, though Mike McKay might have you on the keys here, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, maybe we can do a, a you know, hot or not kind of vote off on this, but, uh, um, you, you know, my, my vote is for this, this this girl who just, like, I mean, it, 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 it borders on sinful, she works up in, like, the tech booth, and she does, like, pre-game and post-game shows, I mean, smoking, all right, so that's where my vote goes on that one. All right, as a Christian, is it okay to feel sad about infertility when everyone just tells you to trust God and anything can happen? Oh my gosh, I could just like feel the the, the knife in the chest, yes. Yes, it is okay to feel sad to not be able to realize something like having a baby biologically of your own that you want. And it only, I think, makes it worse when well-meaning people come along and give a cliche line that anything is possible with God. Yes, anything is possible with God. Yes, pray to God. Yes, ask for it boldly. But trust God to it. And if God is not giving you that gift right now, trust yourself and entrust yourself into his hands and allow yourself to grieve in that. It is certainly okay. It is okay to be sad with God. Great question. Thanks for asking. How about this? Is it possible to believe in the Holy Trinity Father, Son, and Holy Ghost and still believe in other religions and their prophets, uh, and I'm going to insert some words, that they are possible as a road to God. I've heard it put this way once. There are many roads to Christ, but only one road to God. There are many different ways God will work in this world, regardless of culture or language or belief system or religion, to help bring people to a clearer understanding of who he is. And Jesus himself in the Bible witnesses that Jesus is the clearest revelation of who God actually is. And God is unscrupulous. He will use any, any means at his disposal to try to bring people to see Christ. But Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father, or God, if I can put it that way, except by me. And so ultimately, there are many ways that God is operating and many people operating sincerely with partial visions, partial truths, certain glimpses in different belief systems around the world and throughout history that have been instrumental by God to help people take steps. But ultimately, the way to God is fundamentally through Christ so hopefully that gives some insight into navigating this question it's fantastic one and talk about a great question just at the core of what we leave in an intertextual intercontextual world as different societies and beliefs come crashing together today here's one what do you think of the Baha'i faith Interesting, you know, Baha'i has not really gotten a lot of attention, I found, in the 21st century, like we used to hear about it, in in the mid to late 20th century. There's a Baha'i temple, of course, on the North Shore. I don't know if it's in Wilmette or Highland Park or whatever, and beautiful architecture. Go check it out sometime. But I think it makes the fundamental mistake of treating all belief systems as equal and therefore as equal expressions and ways of coming to God. The basic idea behind Baha'i is that every belief system out there, whether you call it Hindu or Muslim or Christian or your kind of own uh, self-concocted variety of belief, if you will, are equal and adequate expressions and all kind of hinting or touching on the same thing. Well, there is certainly commonality between any belief system in this world who is taking God seriously. And you'll find commonalities across all belief systems in this world. But it makes light of the differences. And the differences are important. If I was to say something to you today, like all women are basically the same. At one level, there's a certain common denominator of truth to that. Guys, as we well know, right? And yet, doesn't it sell so short, the uniqueness, the individuality, and the differences of what God made in this amazing creature called female? And to say that every female and what they believe is equally valid, well, well, no, we, we, we would say that's ridiculous. To say that every math answer is equally valid would be ridiculous. To say that every belief system and what they purport is true about God is not only ridiculous, it's insulting to every single belief system out there because it minimizes and dismisses what they actually believe dearly to be important and true. So that's the error that I think that Baha'i happens to make. Now, someone texted here to this number. Don't do that, that's a different number. All right? Here to this number won't work, so, so make sure to kind of fix that and don't text here. And, and by the way, please don't email me directly to this number. Some of you do that as well. I'm seeing some personal things come up. And, and pastor at fellowshipoffaith.org. This will not get answered, all right, outside of Sunday morning. So, now that that's said to one question, it has recently been said that you can be a Christian without believing in the words of the Bible. Your thoughts? Yeah, you can be a Christian without believing in the words of the Bible, but it's not the right way to practice Christianity. You can be on the football team without going to practice or working out. All right? You can be on the team, but you're kind of missing something, and you're missing something central and important to really getting at the core of what it is, Every Christian at some level is inconsistent in their faith, believing things that are not true, engaged in practices that are not God-honoring, or in other words, doing things and showing by their life and action and thought that they truly do put their faith in something other than the Bible. It's true for every single one of us. But what God does is he calls us back to the Bible. And he asks us that when our beliefs and ideas about reality and ourselves come into conflict with what he reveals in the Bible, that we should bend our knee to the Bible rather than trying to get the Bible to conform to what we want to be true or what we happen to to believe, So yes, it is possible, but it is not good and what the journey with Christ ultimately leads to. The Bible is rich, and it's living, and it's active. And it invites us to take it as the very words being spoken by God's mouth himself. And I encourage if you struggle with the Bible, wrestle with the Bible or have never read the Bible, just start, just get lost in it and and, and begin the journey, even if difficult, of letting God speak to you. All right, here's some. When evil people die, are they judged right then and sent to hell? Or do they just cease to exist until judgment day? Let me kind of unpack how this works. And the way I would like to do it is by analogy. Central to the New Testament teaching, central to the message of Jesus, and central to Christian faith is that a day is going to come when Jesus is going to return. And I mean like physically, like you're going to see him, like the heaven's going to rip open, like he's going to come in glory, like angels are going to surround him, like trumpets are going to be blasting, like you're not going to miss it because you were watching TV. You know what I'm saying? And when When he comes, he is going to judge all people, Christians and non-Christians, good and evil, living and dead. That is the judgment day all of us look forward to, right? Or wait. But the New Testament will often speak frequently that for those who are in Christ, A prejudgment is given now. You can do a New Testament word study just on the word now, and it will unearth all kinds of fascinating ideas to you. And the best way I can put it is this, that we are in Christ no matter how evil we happen to be. Our sins are forgiven, and we have nothing to fear on judgment day. Because Christ has borne all of our evilness. And God will look at us and say, not just not guilty, but will look at us and actually say, righteous. Not because you're inherently good, but because God's saying, because of what my son Jesus has done for you. And for those of us who are in Christ, who who call on his name, who put our faith in him, we're kind of out on parole, all right? We're still waiting for the final court date, but we've been given bail. We're out, we're free, and we can live in the freedom of the judgment that's coming now. Now, will the people who are not sharing and that cease to exist? No, no, by no means. And there is debate within Christian thought about how conscious of time people actually are who have died and awaiting judgment day. Some say it's just like you and me, you're just aware of the moment by moment by moment. Others say it's more like falling asleep. You kind of, and then you wake up, and it's like, wow, like 8,000 years went by. That would be a good nap. (laughs) There's merits to both of those arguments. But the way that I've liked, ah, that's resonated with me, is imagine it like this. Imagine you fall asleep. Imagine you fall asleep and you have a dream. And if you're a believer, it will be the best dream you have ever had. If you're not in Christ, it'll be a nightmare. Now imagine Judgment Day coming and waking up and finding that dream become a reality. Hopefully that will help you steer some of the questions you're asking on that. Do you think, with all the chaos in the world, we are living in the early book of Revelations? Okay? The last book of the Bible is called Revelation. Or, in Catholic translations, the Apocalypse, if you will. It means the same thing. And it just means a a revealing of something. Um, I don't just believe that we are living in the early part of that book. I believe that we're living in the entire book. The Apostle Peter... In Acts chapter 2, when he stands up and starts explaining the events of Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, describes it as a fulfillment of what Joel, the prophet Joel in chapter 2, calls the last days, which means we have been in the last days since like 30 AD, give or take. And I know what you're thinking. I don't know if God knows what he means when he uses the word last, you You, you know? Because like, how long do the last days go? Well, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know. But that's how the New Testament talks about it. And so what's written in the book of Revelation is not so much a sequence of events that's going to happen in the future that's like, well, is it our generation or do we kind of like luck out on this one You know, and, and, and beat it to the punch by like dying first? Um, no, it's a very symbolic description of what everyone in the last days lives. And all all people who have lived since 30 AD in what we can call the church age, it's a symbolic description of what all of us will face who are believers in Christ between the two comings of Christ, his first coming back then and his coming again. So yes, but maybe not quite in the same way that you're asking. Now, we got good heaven questions here today. And here's a triple text that came in. Is doubt bad? Follow-up, is doubt sinful? Let me take that one first. Is doubt bad? Can I rephrase it? It's reality. Just like fear is reality. And faith is not so much the absence of doubt but but choosing to trust God despite doubt. That's what faith is in anything, isn't it? How many times have we been afraid to act? Do I ask her to marry me? Do I uproot the family and move? Do I go to this school or that school? Do I ask him out? All of us live with doubts in our heart in times of uncertainty. But what faith is is daring to step out anyway and do it despite doubt. It's a lot like courage. Courage is not the absence of fear. No, courage is being terrified but acting anyway. So, God does not invite us to doubt. He invites us to trust. But if you have doubt, can I just say it's okay? It's okay and is normal as can be, but dare to trust God despite your doubt and move more and more from places of doubt to trust. And through it, God will build more and more assurance and certainty. Is doubt sinful? Well, certainly it can be if we use it as an excuse to keep from acting if we use it as a buffer to keep from stepping out towards God, if we always kind of bring it in so that we can kind of step back and almost methodically stand over it all and go, well, until my doubts are settled, I can't in integrity do this. Ah, BS. BS. Take a leap. Take a leap. God asks you to leap. And he says, trust me. You know how God says trust me? I love it. Genesis chapter 12 comes to a guy named Abram. And he says, Abram, you're pretty cool. He doesn't actually say that. It's my translation. Abraham probably actually wasn't too cool. Abraham was probably one of the uncoolest people you'd ever meet. In fact, I'm regretting what I said earlier because I think if you look at the storyline of Abraham, the reason God chose Abraham is precisely because he really wasn't cool and really wasn't that good, and there was nothing special about him, but God chose him anyway. And he says, Abram, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make your name great, and you are going to be a blessing. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, and all people will be blessed through you. Go to the land that I will show you, and there I am going to do it. And Abraham has to just get up and go. Now, I would want, like, GPS. I would want an itinerary. I would meet with my family for nine months. We would do a cost analysis, right? Leap. Leap, he says. And not blindly but because I've proven myself trustworthy, God says. Because I've shown myself to be faithful, God says, dare to trust me now in these areas where you're afraid, move out of doubt and into faith. There we go. Now, some follow-ups. Do you think there's a staircase up to heaven Um, No, but immediately you're going to come and like throw like a a Genesis 28 to 32 in my face where Jacob falls asleep and he sees a staircase going up to heaven. I don't know if that was kind of like a temporary gig, like, you know, beam me up, Scotty, and it just kind of shot down for the moment, or if it's like always there and it's like, where's the stairs, you know? But uh, those are stairs I don't want to (coughs) climb. Well, I do, but you know what I mean. And finally, do you think heaven is under us or in the sky? Let me do something to help you reframe the way you think about heaven. I think we think of heaven like a great piece of real estate. Like God got a good agent and stumbled across a great deal somewhere before it went on the market and went, oh my gosh, look at the view of the lake. You You know what I mean? And like, that's where we go. Now, I know that's a little crazy, but don't we kind of think of heaven as a place, what if heaven instead is more akin to a state of existence? What if heaven is more transdimensional? What if heaven is literally right here in front of my face, but I'm too dense to see? And what if heaven is better expressed by being in the presence of God in a fuller, more complete way where there is a clearer vision of who he is and, shall I say, in the radiation blast of all the goodness that comes off of him. Because what makes heaven heaven is God. Heaven is where God is at in his most full, complete, and glorious state. And it might be right before our eyes. And the existence of heaven we have might not mean traveling to some galaxy long, long ago and far, far away, but instead, a shift, a translation, a changing, if you will, into all things different. Chew on that one, and you can ask back. All right. All right here. Open up. If space aliens are real... I love this. How does that reconcile with the Bible? I am tempted this morning, I'm not going to, but I'm tempted this morning to ask who believes in extraterrestrial life and who doesn't. And by the way, whoever asked, I am so grateful that you said space aliens because I was going to so be a jerk about it and talk about how Deuteronomy talks about like the alien and the orphan and the widow and how we're supposed to welcome them in as like, you know, immigrants and, and people who are displaced from their homes. But the Bible does not specifically talk about, well, let me qualify. I was gonna say that the Bible does not specifically talk about extraterrestrial life, but the Bible actually does specifically talk about extraterrestrial life. It talks about sentient beings that exist who don't find earth as their home, and you've heard of them, they're called angels. They're called demons. They are called sons of God, to use the biblical language. Now, we know that that exists. And when it says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, what it signifies is that God just didn't just create earth itself, but created the universe. And it is quite possible and feasible and arguable to say that God made a wonderful array And a diverse variety of life that maybe we have not met in other planets, galaxies, multiverses, or however we discover it to form. How does it reconcile with the Bible? Just fine, thank you very much. Um, it, It really does. To insist that it exists, I think, is going too far. I don't mean angels and demons and that, but I mean, you know, what you kind of think like E.T. phone home, right, or, or, or worse. Um, but, wow, I did it myself there. That was like total like 1982 coming up my pores, right? <laughs> Sorry, 48. Um, but at the same time, Colossians, Ephesians, Corinthians which I think will be new, what I would call platform books as we come into the centuries to come and discover more and more about the universe, are very clear that Christ is seated not just above planet Earth, but Christ is seated above the cosmos. That all things have their being through him. That all things are under his authority. That he is the savior, not just of human beings, but of the cosmos. That when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just to redeem you homo sapiens. It was to redeem all life, all of God's creation, the sentient and the non-sentient, the living and the rocks and dirt and weather patterns too. Read those books for yourself. He's come to redeem it all. And if the the mothership should come by the time that we leave service today, it's like, rock on, do you know Jesus? And it would be a fascinating conversation there on out. Okay. Okay. Does God have legs? (laughs) Feet? No. With the major faiths, Christians, Islam, and Judaism, so the major monotheistic faiths, let's say, is God the same? Go back to the question that came in earlier. I think the answer I gave there will help. Certainly, Islam in Judaism are touching closer on the truth of who God is as revealed in Christ than maybe other belief systems that are out there. But I encourage you not to think about it as binary, black and white, right and wrong, but degrees of truth and degrees of error. There are many things that are said in both Islam and Judaism that we as Christians would profess the truth. Same, Christianity itself is a Judaic religion. And yet, very fascinatingly, Jesus and the Apostle Paul will make the case that by rejecting Jesus, the Jews, who should have known him better than anyone, are fundamentally rejecting Christ, or rather, God himself. And so the way I like to think about it is this. Imagine that you got into like a a you-got-male relationship with someone. And imagine that someone is God. And you're just kind of like, texting back and forth or you know it's like an online thing and there's no profile picture there and we know that we can't really trust profiles completely as they're posted right and you're getting into this online relationship and you're going back and forth and and you're learning stuff about them and you're getting stuff about them but you've never seen them face to face you've never learned who they are in the flesh and then when you finally meet you don't actually believe that that's who it is right it literally is the plot to you got mail you, you don't believe who it actually is and you reject the living embodiment and trade it for the image that you've created instead around the shards of truth that you have. Well, we can see how the shards of truth are certainly truth, but to reject the living embodiment is then to reject the actuality of who it is that said. And I think that works as a description of how we wrestle through the convergence of the monotheistic faiths. Ask more if that needs more elaboration. But I got like 8 billion questions here, which is quite fantastic. And uh, um, this one's fascinating. Is Kanye West God? you decide all right are all of the laws in Leviticus God breathed (laughs) like 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 30 seconds of Leviticus is like really God of all the things you could said this is what you're leaving me with right who here has ever tried I'm not gonna say has read Leviticus who has ever tried to read Leviticus would you own that here this morning All right, who here has ever regretted that decision? (laughs) You know, when people think about the weird laws of ancient past in the Bible, if you're a betting person, put money that's coming from Leviticus, all right, there's some very strange things in there. And yes, they are absolutely all God-breathed. But just because they're God-breathed does not mean that they're applicable to you. Would you agree that I could say something to my daughter and I could say something to my mother? And what I might say to my daughter might not be applicable to what I say to my mother and what I say to my mother might not be applicable to what I say to my daughter even though both statements that I've made are true and out of my mouth. Would you agree with that? The Bible kind of works the same way. A lot of what we read in those Old Testament laws is spoken to Israel back then for a variety of reasons I won't get into right now. And while there is goodness and truth to be mined and distilled out of that, much of what he spoke to them, he spoke to them, not as a direct command for you to follow today. So please don't leave today and sacrifice a goat. Please don't distance yourself from the unclean. And it arguably is okay to get tattoos. Is it okay to ask God for signs? Oh, man, which of us haven't? Which of us wouldn't just love God? Like, 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 like just, Lord, just, like, I'm struggling, man. Just, like, explode some fire on the stage here or something, or... You know, and not when Andrew's around so we know he's doing like pyrotechnics or something like that, but which of us hasn't asked for that? You know, it is okay to ask God for signs. It really is. God wants you to ask him for whatever you sincerely want. But he then invites you to trust him with what you want according to what he knows is best for you. As the prophet Garth Brooks once said, <laughs> "Thank God for unanswered prayers." There are times in the Bible when God, even through the prophets like Isaiah in chapter seven, goes, "Demand a sign of me to a king in doubt. Demand a sign of me. Anything in the heavens above or on the earth below. Demand a sign." And you know what King Ahaz does? Oh, "I will not put the Lord my God to the test. I'll get over." God was inviting him to. He didn't want to see what God could show him because then maybe he would have to change. Oh, be careful if you ask. All right? But at the same time, God will often invite us to trust him on signs already done. And do you know that's much of what the Bible is? A record of God giving sign after sign after sign after sign and saying, I literally rose from the dead. How many signs do I have to give you? Because at some point, signs are not enough. Signs can be helpful. Signs can be used as a tool by God. But at some point, he will always call you to the step of faith, regardless of what the signs may or may not be indicating. Yeah. All right, let me do a couple more, and then we'll land the plane here for today. I think this is a follow-up to the hands and feet one. Nope, different question, but from someone else. Does God have human features? Well, Jesus Jesus certainly has human features because Jesus was made human. And so Jesus being fully of God, you can make a circuitous argument to say yes. But no, you know, many times in the Bible, God will be referred to with what are called anthropomorphisms. How do you like that $10 word here today? With anthro, like anthropology, human, morphisms, like mighty Morphin power rangers, forms, right? An- an- anthroforms, um, anthropomorphs, or yeah. Um, the hand of God, the arm of God, the eye of God. These are ways that the prophets write by analogy to help us to understand what God does. Not to indicate that God is like six foot three, has brown hair, can bench 220. You you know, I mean, stuff like that. You know know what I'm saying? That's not what it's doing. God is spirit. And so it would seem to be that when we are made in God's image, it's not kind of like, well, okay. You know, God has a hand, so here's a hand. But something deeper and more transcendent than that. And let me, add, let me land the plane for time's sake with this one today. Is it okay to love someone who does not believe in God? Oh, you bet. Thank you for asking. Thank you for asking. You bet it is not only okay to love someone who does not believe in God. God wants you to love people who do not believe in him. And more than that, God wants you to love people who hate him, who despise him, who blaspheme him, who undercut him, who trample on him. Much of Jesus' ministry was going to people who rejected God in thought, word, or deed. Jesus loved sinners. God loves people all people, from the people who believe in him with the uttermost devotion to the people who reject him with the uttermost hate to the people who are just cold and apathetic and the uttermost way God loves these kinds of people. And if you're one of these kinds of people, God loves you. God loves you so much even if you don't love him. God loves you even if you don't believe in him. God loves you you, even if you've trounced his name. God loves you even if you're going off to some convention right after this today to try to undermine belief in God in this world today. God loves you. And the way of Christians is meant to fundamentally be defined by love. Fundamentally, God loves and so a follower of God is fundamentally called to love as well, no matter who it is. You remember what Jesus says? You have heard that it's said. Love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute him. Love them like they've never been loved before. And through that love, maybe a better understanding of who God is and the relationship God wants to have with them can be glimpsed, even if just a little through you? That's all the questions for today. And not because there aren't more. Oh my gosh, guys, rock on. I mean, I'm like still scrolling. There are so many questions that came flooding the stage today. Good questions that we want to answer. And here's the good news for you. Next Sunday we are doing the exact same thing. We are inviting you to bring your phone again. We are inviting you to bring in the questions you have that haven't been answered. And we are gonna get to some of these next week, but we are also gonna take the new questions coming. So invite someone who's asking questions. Invite someone who you think needs a place that they can ask questions. But we're gonna do this as well. We run a podcast called Questions You Never Thought You Can Ask in Church every Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Central. We will get to every single one of the questions you ask in time. Now, not this Wednesday. There's too many. But we'll begin. And you can catch that on our webpage, fellowshipoffaith.org. Go to the FOF Plus page, and you'll find a link to the podcast right there. Or hop on Spotify or Apple or whatever podcast provider you use and just search questions you never thought you could ask in church and you'll get it there. Or join us live on Facebook through Fellowship of Faith's Facebook page. And you'll get it there and can even post questions in the comment. We wanna help you with your questions. So let's keep the conversation going. Way to go on that today, guys. Way to go on the questions you're asking, the way God is turning in your heart. And invite Ben to come back up. I'm gonna invite you to stand with me and let's just kinda of come to God in prayer, all right?